Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Calling Tau City, turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 517. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. I hope everyone is a big fine and a big dandy. Big old Merry Christmas to you all there. Yes, but did you have a fab time over the festive season there? Man of our head. Oh, chunky monkey or what, man? I've even eaten... Desserts and puddings that were left by other folks. Even that, I've had that as well. So, I'm recording this on a very early because everyone's still in bed. What time is it? It is. It's about blooming seven o'clock. Very early on the morning, and we've got this in-between little time where between Christmas and between New Year, and this is a great time to put in this little special. Recording of The Silent Invaders by Robert Silverberg. And we're going to play this as a whole serial over on Patreon for the $5 a month. But I wanted to give you just a little insight as well into it. A little listen, a little taste. And actually listen to Silverberg. Because Silverberg wrote a fascinating or a little kind of quirky intro to it. Which was, it's remarkable. You know, if you write that much stuff. Silverberg forgot about it. You know what I mean? And it's nice as well because even that, you know, the intro was wrote years ago. Do you know what I mean? And like I say, I think this came out in something like 63, somewhere around. I'm just off the top of my head, but it's an old one, you know. And we're going to start doing these serials in the, on the Patreon side as well. And it's just, you know, I, I mentioned last week I was, you know, emailing Alan Steele. And he's a great one for all the kind of the old stuff as well, you know. And, and that story where you wrote Arkwright's story with the, the Nathan the Nathan one last week, where he, he's blending in the writers of real with the science fiction and then taking it to a whole different level. Do you know what I mean as well? So, and that story there is, I've, I've had a few emails. You know, is it science fiction, that? I love that. You know, is it really? But all I can say is, you know, like, go and listen to Arkwright by Alan Steele. You know what I mean? But for me, just if that single story from last week, just it was the teasing. Do you know what I mean? It was just such a great story. Just that, yeah, are we, are we there? Is, is it like, it was like that. So it was just, I loved it. I love Alan Steele. I love that kind of his work. It's just staggering. Just science fiction, like, from a kid's point of view, you know, oh, wow. So, what we're going to do today is, 
play this this whole show that we're going to run, which is going to run again on Patreon. That'll be the first one. So it's like a show within a show. Then we're going to come back out of that show and go, come up to the present date. And we've got Mr. JJ at the end of the month, man, for God's sake. Mr. JJ Campanella. And again, Jim's on fire. I don't know if he's starting this for real, but... He has got another idiot scientist of the month. If everyone listened to last week's when I said Jim was just all back, he's got another one. I'll give you a little sneak, sneak it. This guy's pronging himself with electric eels, man, for God's sake, in the name of science. So, so what I'll do now is I'll hand you over to Mr. Mark Zanfandino, who Mark is part of the District of Wonders crew there, you know, one of the, the regulars on the District of Wonders. And behind the scenes there was spanners and oil raggy, oily, greasy rags there, cleaning the ship and everything like that. But Mark's going to take this, and each week he's going to like top and tail it with a little introduction. And so I, well, I'll just I'll leave it there, like I say, and then I'll come back after it. So, where you go, Mark? Welcome to the serial audiobook, The Silent Invaders, an unabridged podcast of Robert Silverberg's classic 1963 science fiction novel. This novel is available as a serialized podcast and as a complete full audiobook, exclusively on Patreon from the District of Wonders. I am your host, Mark Zanfordino. This is the very first time this classic work from Robert Silverberg has been presented in audio format. Robert Silverberg is one of science fiction's most beloved writers, and author of more than 100 science fiction works, over 60 non-fiction books, and editor or co-editor of more than 60 anthologies. He is a past president of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, and the winner of five Nebula Awards and five Hugo Awards. In 2004, the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America presented him with the Grand Master Award. Silverberg is one of only 29 writers to have received that distinction. The Silent Invaders is about Abner Harris, who was sent to Earth on a mission of extreme urgency. The universe was in danger of enslavement by the pebble-skinned Medlins, and the fight against them called for Harris to assume the disguise of a flesh-and-blood Earthman. But once in that new synthetic body, he discovered that the real villains of space were not the Medlins or the people of Earth. They were his own kind. Suddenly he was alone, alienated from his own race, hated by the Medlins, and an imposter on Earth. No matter what side he chose, he'd be a traitor. Yet choose he must, or forever remain a man without a planet. And now, an introduction to the novel as written by Robert Silverberg, June 1976. The Silent Invaders Introduction It is a strange and wonderful thing for a writer to forget the existence of one of his own novels. Rather like a parent forgetting one of his children... But I imagine that Johann Sebastian Bach, who was responsible for some twenty offspring, occasionally had trouble reciting the names of the whole tribe from memory. And I, well, I have written a lot of novels. The Silent Invaders is one that did indeed slip from my mind. The occasion on which I rediscovered it was an odd one, a bit schizophrenic, a moment in which I experienced that curious split between the Robert Silverberg who is my own personal identity and the Robert Silverberg who is the world-famous science fiction writer of someone else's scenario. I mean, I have been carrying my identity around for a long time, 
and the fact that I have written SF is part of that identity, but not by any means all of it. A whole goulash of other events, activities, preferences, habits, hobbies, and what not is part of it too. But to readers, I am simply a character in the great unfolding drama of science fiction that goes on in their heads. I am an abstraction, a name on a title page, a structure made of words. Anyway, there I was in Alamogordo, New Mexico, on a summer day in 1973, midway in a rambling jaunt through the southwest from Carlsbad to Santa Fe. I stopped in a luncheonette news company on the main street for a cold drink and sauntered over to explore the book cracks. Naturally, I checked the science fiction shelves and, it is forgivable egocentricity, my eye happened to wander to that familiar place between Sheckley and Simak, where the Silverberg titles are often kept, and in that place I spied an unfamiliar and rather handsome paperback, the cover of which declared... The Silent Invaders, by the winner of science fiction's Hugo and Nebula Awards, Robert Silverberg. Ah, I said instantly to myself, there's a new Silverberg novel out. How splendid. And I reached for it, and only when my hand was midway to the shelf did I tremble a bit and remember that I was Silverberg, and that my new novel was called Dying Inside, and not The Silent Invaders and that, in fact, I couldn't remember anything called The Silent Invaders at all. Was there some other Robert Silverberg in the SF business now? Had I carelessly turned this novel out last year without noticing it? No. No. Please, no. A glance at the copyright page told me everything. The book had first been published in 1963. It had been written somewhat earlier, of course. It had been out of print for a long time and out of mind for nearly as long. Someone at Ace had reached into the backlist and yanked it forth, and there it was, to my surprise, on public sale in Alamogordo, New Mexico. I paid my 95 cents. This was 1973, remember, and paperbacks were a mere 95 cents then, and walked off with the book, and that night dropped a postcard to my agent to find out what the dickens was going on. It was indeed a reissue and nobody had warned me it was coming. And now again, a few years later, the book comes forth, only this time with some advance notice to its author, who will have only himself to blame if he is startled once again to find it on sale. For the bibliographical record, I wrote the original version of The Silent Invaders, a 16,000-word novella, all the way back in December 1957, when good old Ike was in the White House and I was still a beardless boy. As it happens, I began to grow the beard that it's so familiar a part of my appearance the very week I was working on the short version of The Silent Invaders. It was that long ago. The story was commissioned by one of my most dependable markets, a magazine called Science Fiction Adventures, edited by the estimable Larry T. Shaw. Alas, SFA folded a few months later, and Shaw used the story in a surviving magazine, Infinity, where it appeared under the pseudonym of Calvin M. Knox. I have the issue before me as I write. The date is October 1958. The cover is a bright red job done by Emsch, and the headline reads, Was she a woman or a monster? A great Calvin Knox novel. Wasn't a bad story. 
wasn't an amazingly good one, just a routine job of the sort I knocked out pretty rapidly in those days to pay the bills. My ledger reveals that I was paid in December of 1958 for this story that I wrote one year earlier, $237, which is one reason why young writers of science fiction then tended to knock out a lot of stories for the sake of paying their bills. Subsequently, a long time subsequently, I hatched the notion of expanding that novella into a novel for Ace Books. The contract for The Silent Invaders is dated March 14, 1962. I had a lot of bills to pay that month, too. Bills of a size that would have stupefied the lad who wrote that story four years previously, for in February of 1962 I had moved into Fiorello Lagardia's old house in Riverdale, New York, your basic neat little 15-room mansion, and I was desperately trying to get it repainted, furnished, and otherwise up to snuff, which meant selling a lot of books in a hurry, and it was tempting to resuscitate old properties and blow them up to book length. I finished my expansion of the story a bit later, in March of 1962, and Ace published it the following spring, in a double volume with William F. Temple's Battle of Venus on the flip side. Comparing the shorter version with the book is instructive. So far as plot goes, the two are virtually identical, and neither is what you'd call Hugo-quality work. But the expansion allowed me to put a coat of recognisably Silverberg-sounding prose over the bare bones of the cloak-and-dagger adventure story beneath. The most significant place of this sort is Chapter 9, The Telepathy Scene in which my 1962 self suddenly burst out with a flourish of imagery and passion that sounds much more like the Silverberg of 1970 or 1971, the Silverberg of Dying Inside and Tower of Glass, than the kid who wrote the original story in 1957. The same scene in the magazine version is perfunctory by comparison. I find it most interesting to see these phases in my own development lying there like the strata of some buried city. I would not try to pretend that The Silent Invaders is a landmark in American literature or even a very important segment of the oeuvre of Robert Silverberg. It is, after all, a book whose very existence I managed to forget in just eleven years. Not because I was repressing the memory, mind you, just because I had no reason to keep it in mind. It's a decent action story, cobbled together out of second-hand ingredients by a young man who had to buy a few thousand buckets of house paint, and not much more. I could tell you in some detail why it isn't as memorable a book as Dying Inside, or Downward to the Earth, or Night Wings, but you will probably be able to arrive at the reasons on your own. On the other hand, there are always people at science fiction conventions who seek me out to tell me how much they loved my straightforward melodramatic adventure novels of twenty years ago, and how much they wish I hadn't deviated into writing all that arty literary stuff. They know what they like, and who am I to quarrel with them? In its original printing, this book was dedicated to a beloved tomcat of mine, long since gone to his reward. I let that dedication stand, but now I dedicate this book also to all those people who yearn for the good old days when the Robert Silverberg byline meant books like The Silent Invaders. Robert Silverberg, Oakland, California, June 
1976. It never occurred to me that an author might forget some of his own works, but given how prolific a writer Mr. Silverberg is, I can understand now how that might happen. And now that we've all heard what the author himself thinks of his work, it's time for us to enjoy it as well. So here is... The Silent Invaders Chapter 1 The prime-class starship Lucky Lady came thundering out of overdrive half a million miles from Earth and phased into the long, steady iron-drive glide at Earth-norm gravitation toward the orbiting depot. In his second-class cabin, aboard the starship, the man whose papers said he was Major Abner Harris of the Interstellar Development Corps stared anxiously, critically, at his face in the mirror. He was checking for what must have been the hundredth time to make sure that there was no sign of where his tendrils once had been. There was, of course, no sign. He looked the very image of an Earthman. He smiled, and the even-featured, undistinguished face the medics had put on him drew back, lips rising obediently in the corners, cheeks tightening, neat white teeth momentarily on display. It was a good smile, an Earthman's smile down to the last degree. Major Harris scowled, and the face darkened as a scowling face should darken. The face behaved well. The synthetic white skin acted as if it were his own. The surgeons back on Daru had done their usual superb job on him. His appearance was a triumph of the art. They had removed the fleshy four-inch-long tendrils that sprouted at every Daru's temples. They had covered his deep, golden-hued skin with an overlay of convincingly Terran white, and grafted it so skillfully that by now it had become his real skin. Contact lenses had turned his eyes from their normal red to a Terran blue-gray. Hormone treatments had caused hair to sprout on head and body, thick Earthman hair where none had been before. The surgeons had not meddled with his internal plumbing, because that was too great a task even for their skill. Inwardly, he remained alien, with the efficient Darui digestive organ, where a Terran had so many incredible feet of intestine, and with a double heart and the sturdy liver just back of his three lungs. Inside, he was alien. Behind the walls of his skull, he was Arkilom, of the city of Hellas, a Darui of the highest class, a servant of the spirit. But he had to forget his Darui identity now. He had to cloak himself in the Earthman identity he wore. He was not Arkilom, he told himself doggedly, but Major Abner Harris. He knew Major Harris's biography in the greatest detail, and reviewed it constantly, so that it lay beneath the conscious part of his mind like the hidden nine-tenths of an iceberg, ready to come automatically to use when needed in an emergency. Major Abner Harris, according to the identity they had created for him, had been born in 2520, in Cincinnati, Ohio. Cincinnati's a city, he thought. Ohio is a state. Remember that, and don't mix them up. Ohio was one of the United States of America, which was a large political subunit of the planet Earth. Major Abner Harris was now aged 42, with a good hundred years of his lifespan left. He had attended Western Reserve University, studying galactography, graduated 43, entered the Interstellar Redevelopment Corps, 46, commissioned 50, now holding the rank of Major. 
successful diplomatic military missions to Altair 7, Sirius 9, Procyon 2, Alpharats 4, and Sirius 7. Major Harris was unmarried. His parents had been killed in a highway jet crash in 44. He had no known living relatives with a greater consanguinity than D+. Height 5 feet 10, weight 220, colour fair, retinal index point 033. Major Harris was visiting Earth on vacation. He was to spend eight months relaxing on his native world before reassignment to his next planetary post. Eight months, thought the alien being who called himself Major Abner Harris, would certainly be ample time for Major Abner Harris to lose himself in the swarming billions of Earth and carry out the purposes for which he had been sent. The lucky lady was on the last lap of her journey across half a million light-years, bearing passengers to Earth and points along the route. Harris had boarded the starship on Alpharats 4, after having been shipped there from Daru via private warship. For the past three weeks, while the giant vessel had slipped gently through the sleek grey tunnel in the continuum that was its overdrive channel, Major Harris had been practising how to walk at Earth-norm gravity. Daru was a large world. Its radius was 11,000 miles, and though its density was not as great as Earth's, still the gravitational attraction was half again as intense. Harris had been born and raised under Daru's gravity of 1.5 Earth norm, or, as Harris had thought of it in the days when his mind centred not on Earth but on Daru, Earth's gravity was 0.67 Daru norm. Either way, it meant that his muscles would be functioning in a gravitational field two-thirds as strong as the one they had developed in. For a while, at least, he would have a tendency to lift his feet too high, to overstep, to exaggerate every motion. If anyone noticed, he could use the excuse that he had spent most of his time in service on heavy planets, and that would explain away some of his awkwardness. Some of it, but not all. A native-born Earther, no matter how many years he spends on heavy worlds, still never forgets how to cope with Earth-norm gravity. Harris had to learn that from scratch. He did learn it, painstakingly, during the three weeks of overdrive travel across the universe toward the system of Sol. Now the journey was almost over. All that remained was the transfer from the starship to an Earth shuttle, and then he could begin his life as an Earthman. Earth hung outside the main viewport, twenty feet from Harris's cabin. He stared at it. He saw a great green ball of a world, with two huge continents sprawling here, another landmass there. A giant moon was moving in slow procession around the planet, keeping one pock-marked face eternally staring inward, the other glaring at outer space like a single beady dark eye. The sight made Harris homesick. Daru was nothing like this. Daru, viewed from space, had the appearance of a giant red fruit, covered over by the crimson mist that was the upper layer of its atmosphere. Beneath that, an observer could discern the great blue seas and the two hemisphere-large continents of Dara and Daro. And the moons, Harris thought nostalgically, seven glistening blank faces ranged like gleaming coins in the sky, each at its own angle to the ecliptic, each taking its place in the sky nightly like a gem moved by subtle clockwork, 
and the mating of the moons, when the seven came together once a year to form a fiercely radiant diadem that filled half the sky. Angrily, he cut the train of thought. You're an Earthman, remember? You can't afford the luxury of nostalgia. Forget Daru. A voice on a speaker overhead said, Please return to your cabins, ladies and gentlemen. In approximately eleven minutes, we will come to rest at the main spaceborne depot. Those passengers who are intending to transfer here will please notify their area steward. Harris returned to his cabin while the voice methodically repeated the statement in several of the other languages of Earth. Earth still spoke more than a dozen major tongues, which he was surprised to learn. Daru had reached linguistic homogeneity some three thousand years or more in the past, and it was odd to think that so highly developed a planet as Earth still had many languages. Minutes ticked by. The public address system hummed again, finally, and at last came the word that the lucky lady had ended its ion-drive cruise and was tethered to the orbital satellite. It was time for him to leave the ship. This has been The Silent Invaders, Part 1. Who is the alien imposter taking the identity of Major Abner Harris, and what do the Darui want from Earth? Much more to come in the next episode. That's it for now. We'll be back next week with Part 2 of The Silent Invaders. The first airing of The Silent Invaders. First time ever on audio, The Silent Invaders. And I'm getting loads of like requests for that as well. So look out for little other things coming with The Silent Invaders. But it is on Patreon. So you have to pop over to Patreon. And list, it all supports the show. This is how we kind of do this show. This is just a thank you for kind of doing so we can get out these stories and pay these writers. Pop over to Patreon, and for the $5 mark, you get that in the serial format. You also, you can get it in serial format, but you also, if you do the $10 a month one, you get that whole audiobook. And that's kicking off the 1st of January. I like it. Monday, the 1st of January. So that's super cool. So please pop over, you know, think about it. You know, the start of the, the, start of the year, let me get through this year there without any bloody... Hiccups, man. It seems like the ship's always just like bouncing her ass backside off the you know rocky planet. So let's you know support. Honestly, that's we need we need to kind of be looked after. You know, we need care and attention. You know what I mean? We're getting older. We just we need some retirement home now for the ship. So one thing before we get into Jim's little little rant there, little. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't hold back. There's a couple of other things that I'm 
doing as well. As mentioned last week, we're, we're getting that sorted out as well. We're going to do Amy H. Sturgis. I'm going to interview Amy. 100 episodes. We're going to do that in Discord, I think, on the 4th of January. We're getting, I'm getting all that sorted. I'm, well, I'm just learning. Someone's having to write when you press that button. Uh, now talk, talk, Tony. So I'm learning all that. I'm going to do that. And starting on the 5th of January, and you think, no, oh God, that's more. But what I'm going to do, I'm going to do something called Starship Echoes. Big thank you to Russell. Did I, have I mentioned this or not? Christmas is, so I'm doing Starship Echoes, where on a Friday, I'm just going to go through the, the archives and just pick out little hints and little, you know, little stories that have gone before, anything like that. So that will be a whole show on the on this feed, on the kind of the free feed. It'll be in the Patreon one as well, where it's ad free as well. But it's it'll be on that, you know, this show. But it'll be coming on a Friday, so you'll get two shows now on on this. You know, if you subscribe to this kind of channel, this show, both shows will get it. One will get it ads, with one will get it ad free, and it's just a you know what I mean. We have so much man in that back history of Starship Silver Man. It's just and it's not just stories. You know what I mean? It's just little bits. When I was I've, I've recorded a couple of them. And when I've just went back in, you know, and I've went to the thing, they say, the web page, you know, because I always say, just go back to the page and, and it's on there. The other things that I've jammed in there, do you know what I mean? Yeah, you get a story, but there's like an interview here, there's a little fact here from, you know, from bygone times. So I'm going to start that on, I think it's the 5th of January as well. And it'll just automatically come onto this feed so you don't have to do anything or <laughs> delete where you kind of, geez, here he goes again. So... There is another reason to kind of help her out, you know what I mean? Kind of all this fab content, man. Come over to Patreon and help her out. But I think now we need to speak to a very, you know, to tell her about the idiot of the sinus of the month, Mr. JJ Campanella, who was actually not the idiot, mind you. Just made that quite clear. Greetings and organella Hephaestians, my teleneurotically gradacious listeners. And welcome to this December 2017 Science News Update. I'm your host for this hot mess of an excuse for a science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Let's start off with the Idiot Scientist of the Month Award. I have to admit I did not think I'd give this out two months in a row, but it just goes to show that you never know. You may remember last month's winner, Dr. Josiah Zayner, who injected himself live on Facebook with a genetic concoction that he tells everyone will give him muscles bigger than the Terminators. It is much more likely to just give him an infection. Okay, now this month's winner does not even come close to Zayner from last month. In fact, Dr. Kenneth Catania of Vanderbilt University falls toward the more reasonable end of the sanity scale. Again, not like Zayner. Catania does what he does because he would never experiment as he has been doing on anybody but himself. So, what heinous masochistic act of science is Catania performing? Well, Dr. Kenneth Catania knows just how much it hurts to be zapped by an electric eel. For the first time ever, the biologist has measured the strength of a defensive electrical attack on a real-life potential predator. Yes, he himself. Catania placed his arm in a tank with a 40-centimeter-long electric eel, which, by the way, is not very big, 
and determined in amps the electrical current that flowed into him when the eel struck. He reported in the journal Current Biology back in September that at its peak, the current reached 40 to 50 milliamps in his arm. This zap was painful enough to cause him to jerk his hand from the tank during each trial. He says of this, quote, If you've ever been on a farm and touched an electric fence, it's pretty similar to that. Uh-huh. No, Dr. Catania, I have not done that because that is something only a 12-year-old would do in a dare. After all, there is a warning telling me not to touch the electric fence because it's electrified. Anyway, this is Catania's latest study in a body of research analyzing the intricacies of an electric eel's behavior. The way electric eels have been described by biologists in the past has been fairly primitive, apparently. Electric eels use electric current to navigate, communicate, and hunt for small prey. But when faced with a large land-based predator, eels will actually launch themselves out of the water and electrify the animal with the touch of its head. Using electrical measurements Catania collected during the eel attacks, he came up with an equation to estimate the amount of electric current flowing from the eel into his arm. The electric shock was strongest when the electric eel was farthest out of the water, and that makes sense because when the eel is mostly submerged, the majority of the, the electricity is just going to dissipate into the water. As the eel rises out of the water, the only place left for the electricity to flow is into whatever that fish head bumps against. And that happened to be Catania's arm. Wow, gives you a tingle just thinking about it, don't it? Catania cannot say, however, whether a leap attack from an electric eel is equally as shocking for all potential predators. Electrical currents travel through an animal more or less effectively, depending on its outer layer. The internal resistance or opposition to electrical current flow could be different for a human arm than for an animal that has scales or fur, like a crocodile or a dog. Catania notes that more research is needed to understand how powerful the shock is for other land animals. Extrapolating from his experience with a small eel, Catania estimates that a human struck on the trunk by a larger, 1.8-meter-long electric eel might endure as much as two-tenths of an ampere, or about 63 watts of power. That's about eight and a half times as powerful as the zap from a typical law enforcement taser gun. Ouch. That's just kind of unpleasant, kind listeners. Anyway, next story. Again, I thought it would be a while before there was an update on this next story, but as usual, I was wrong. You may remember last month, I discussed a story about there being new chambers found in the Great Pyramid of Giza. Well, I came across an update in a rather unusual place, in my email inbox, in my weekly news update of all things 3D printable across the world. I use 3D printing in my laboratory sometimes for equipment and to model three-dimensional versions of the proteins that we work with in my lab. I have also purchased my family a 3D printer for Christmas, so I'm quite interested in any news regarding breakthroughs and new methods and materials in the field. Now, back to the story. The institutes of INRIA and CNRS have collaborated with Project Scan Pyramids, 
led by the University of Cairo and the HIP Institute in France, which recently uncovered a void inside the Khufu pyramid. You may remember they used muon tomography, a technique that generates three-dimensional images of volumes using cosmic rays. Now, although the researchers are keen to find out just what exactly lies hidden inside that space, they're not able to easily gain access to it. That's where this story comes in. It has to do with a new type of exploration robot. The devices have been built to fit through a small hole as little as three centimeters. They can also unfold and inflate themselves in order to explore differently sized spaces. Dr. Jean-Baptiste Moret, a member of the Larson Project team at the INRIA Center, says, quote, 3D printing is now the solution to the challenge fitting all of the necessary hardware into such a small diameter. Besides the usual technical challenges with miniaturization, we needed to machine or 3D print many small parts, and there are a lot of moving parts. For instance, the current design of our tubular scout robot has more than 140 ball bearings, unquote. The team used a process called stereolithography, or sometimes called SLA. This is an incredibly cool way of 3D printing, which uses liquid polymer and special lamps at particular wavelengths to harden the polymer. The object is reverse printed and is lifted out of the liquid as if by magic to become three-dimensional. It's an amazing process to watch. Not to advertise here for someone else, but I backed the quite successful company Kudo 3D on Kickstarter, and I'm just waiting for my Bean SLA printer due out in January. Kudo 3D has an excellent reputation of the business. Uh, we'll see what happens if I actually get it. I'll probably tell you maybe in January or February about it. Moray used other equipment than the Bean. He says, quote, We started with our Ultimaker 2. 3D filament printer because it was faster than machining, and 3D printing allows us to make highly complex shapes. But it was hard to get small, complex parts quite right. We then recently bought a Form 2 3D printer, which is amazing for small and complex parts. Our prototypes are now much better, and we can print new parts several times a day. Unquote. I have to give Murray credit. He is absolutely right about the Form 2 SLA printer. It's quite expensive, and it's also very expensive to maintain, but I've used it myself to print detailed protein structures, and the thing is absolutely amazing for getting little tiny details correct. It's really quite incredible. Anyway, Murray says the first robot they made features an omnidirectional camera that first explores an area and then transmits high-resolution images. As soon as safety levels are determined, a second miniature robot is inserted through the same opening. The robotic blimp sits within a dock but can be uncoupled to explore the area. It can also be inflated to 80 centimeters across using helium. The robot includes lights and cameras and a navigational system. Once its mission is finished, the device returns to the dock, deflates, and moves back out of the opening. The invention opens up a series of opportunities for researchers to explore otherwise very difficult spaces to reach. It eliminates the risk and complications that usually come with the task, like giant boulders falling on you or pits of poisonous snakes. Indy, throw me the idol! And so on. 
In addition, the blimp shape enables the robots to navigate more easily. Stairs or rocks, for example, can be swiftly moved around. According to the researchers, it also offers a better perspective and greater surface area coverage. Murray, who I'm absolutely certain must be a dead ringer for Raiders' René Balloc, says, quote, The fact that it can fly makes it possible to overcome all the obstacles on the ground that make exploration complicated, such as stairs or debris. Even better, a mini-airship does not require engines to keep it in the air. It has good stability and better safety with regard to the emolument as the risks linked to a collision are lower, unquote. Somewhere deep in a warehouse filled with a million crates, Indiana Jones is turning in his government-appointed grave, mumbling, many airships. What kind of archaeology is that? Next story. Here's a question you may have never asked yourself. How big does a planet have to be before it can have a ring or rings around it? I've certainly wondered this, especially when looking at the covers of old SF novels with artwork that was way too, to say the least, imaginative. None of the smaller interplanets in the solar system have rings, and it is only the gas giants that seem to possess them, locally at least. If small rocky exoplanets have rings, then it is still a bit of a mystery because of the massive distances involved to figure that out. However, the Kuiper belt of our own solar system is not quite so far away as any of those exoplanets, and astronomers have been gazing pretty steadily at them for the last couple of years. You would think that studying big rocks smaller than Pluto would get you little results. But apparently you'd be wrong. Dr. José Luis Ortiz of the Institute of Astrophysics in Andalusia, in Granada, Spain, has discovered that not only can rings be found around smaller planetary bodies, but apparently rings, quote, appear to be common in the ultrasolar system, unquote. This work was published in October in the prestigious journal Nature, and the research itself was done about a year ago in January 2017. Back last January, Ortiz and his colleagues used 12 telescopes at 10 different observatories to peer into the Kuiper Belt, a region of AC objects out beyond the orbit of Neptune. They watched the dwarf planet Haumea block the light of a distant star. That tiny eclipse let the team measure the dwarf planet's size and shape and the surrounding environment more accurately than it's ever been done. Haumea turned out to be larger and shaped like an egg. Its long axis stretches about 2,300 kilometers, a bit more than half the width of the contiguous U.S., and less dense than previously thought. To their surprise, the researchers also saw the background star flicker before and after its light was blocked by Haumea itself. That flicker is consistent with a 70-kilometer-wide ring about a 1,000 kilometers above the dwarf planet's surface. Ortiz says, quote, The ring is probably made of rock and ice, but more observations are needed to know for sure. It could be debris kicked up by impacts from small stray space rocks or even just from the dwarf planet's spinning. Haumea twirls unusually fast, completing a rotation once every 3.9 hours, which could help fling particles into orbit, unquote. As I said earlier, 
before the four giant planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, were the only solar system bodies known to have rings. There have been some hints back in the last couple of years that other tiny planetoids may have rings. Chiriklo 10-199 and Chiron 2060, but the evidence was weak for both of those. This new hard data suggests that maybe there are a lot more dwarf planets with rings out there in the Kuiper Belt than were previously believed. Some of you may have read that the recent search for the rings of Pluto came up empty in the last couple of months, and until now, no object farther away than Neptune seemed to have rings. Some astronomers actually speculated that the Kuiper Belt disrupted rings around small worlds there. Haumea's rings suggest that such structures can form and survive at the solar system's very fringes after all. All right, let's get back to actual biology for the next story. So for years, neuroscientists have tried to figure out the difference between male and female brains, and they've come up with a number of them. A new study that just came out this month in the journal Cell from the lab of Dr. Pavel Ostin and his team at Cold Spring Harbor have determined some additional differences. For years, neuroscientists have had a problem. They have characterized isolated regions of the brain because of technical limitations that prevented analysis of the whole brain at once. And that meant that the researchers had to guess about similar functions of one region to another. Well, Ostin has now fixed this problem by designing a novel brain-wide mapping platform called QBrain. His group employed QBrain in a series of proof-of-principle experiments and uncovered surprising results, including gender-specific differences in the numbers of neuronal cells and the subcortical regions of mouse brains. Osten says, quote, We found things we did not expect, and that gave us optimism that QBrain will do a more comprehensive analysis across a much larger set of cell types. It will give a much more comprehensive understanding of the compositions of the individual brain regions with respect to the pieces that make the circuits, unquote. All right, hold on to your hats. Here's an explanation of how Ostin's method works. QBrain combines automated serial two-photon tomography to image the whole brain with automated computational algorithms to detect and count fluorescently labeled cells. That's what the paper says. Austin's group then uploads the generated data to an online database. Each QBrain experimental data set includes cell counts, densities, and images of the serial sections that are visualized from the brain and the distribution of cells along with a bunch of other data. To demonstrate QBrain's capability, Austin's team assess the distribution of several primarily inhibitory neuronal cell populations, which included cells positive for making somatostatin, parvalbumin, and vasoactive intestinal peptide. To study these cells, Ostin fluorescently labeled them and let the Q-brain pipeline do the rest of the work. He states that his method is very accurate. He says, quote, whatever is measured, that is what it is there is a very low error rate with this method, unquote. Despite being generally smaller than male brains, female mouse brains showed higher numbers of somatostatin, 
and vasointestinal peptide-making cells in the brain regions corresponding to reproductive behavior. In male mice, it was only in the preoptic nucleus, which is a region affiliated to the male-specific function of ejaculation, that exhibited an increase in the amount of somatostatin-making cells. Osen explained that the latter is almost a positive control for Q-brain. The platform independently detected this region of the male brain, a region highly specific for male sexual function, that contains three times more cells than the comparable area in the female brain. Well, that makes sense, since uh, females wouldn't need to have a, a male-specific area specific for ejaculation. Osted explains, quote, I really did not expect that we were going to find anything in male-female comparisons, but we did. And in fact, we did it because NIH now requires it. We were obviously pleased as punch to find serious differences, unquote. Austin is not done with his work now. His team now plans to image around 20 cell types a year for the next five years to expand other organisms beyond mice. They've already have collaborations set up to study blind mole rats and prairie voles and, yes, human brain tissues. His work may be a serious breakthrough in our understanding of brain mapping and differences between not just males and females, but normal and abnormal brains with all sorts of psychological maladies. The world is changing, ladies and germs, and it seems to be just changing faster. The FDA has approved the first gene therapy for an inherited genetic disease. Wahoo! The FDA approved Spark Therapeutics Gene Therapy, Luxturna, trademark, for treating children and adults with the rare inherited blindness disorder called biallelic RPE65 mutation-associated retinal dystrophy. Approval of the adenoviral vector-delivered gene therapy marks the first gene therapy approved for a genetic disease. Spark has not confirmed the cost of a treatment, although some commentators are anticipating um, about a million dollars per patient price tag. Wow, you had better have Darn fine insurance in the future if you want to be cured of a genetic disease. Next year, the FDA aims to start rolling out a series of what it calls disease-specific guidance documents on the development of specific gene therapy products. These will lay out modern and more efficient parameters, including new clinical measures, for the evaluation and review of gene therapy for high-priority diseases where the platform is being targeted. Biallelic RPE65 mutation associated retinal dystrophy affects anywhere between 1,000 to 2,000 patients in the U.S. and is one of a group of retinal disorders that are caused by more than 220 different genes. And they all lead to progressive visual dysfunction and potential blindness. In the case of this RPE65 mutation, Affected individuals have inherited mutations in both copies of the RPE65 genes, which results in reduced levels or a complete lack of the RPE65 protein in retinal cells. That leads to a progressive loss of vision, often during childhood or adolescence, and eventual blindness. 
Note that because there are only one to 2,000 affected individuals in the U.S., that is one of the reasons why the treatment will be about a million dollars per patient. And you can bet that insurance companies will be quite wary of paying for this one in particular. Here you go. Here's an imagined conversation with your insurance carrier. You. Well, it's great that there's a new treatment for retinal dystrophy. My child will not be growing up blind. Insurance wonk. Hold up there, cowboy. We didn't say we'd pay. You. But my child will be blind. And I do have catastrophic insurance coverage for my family. Yeah, well, you do have that insurance, but not quite up to that $1 million mark. You. But my policy clearly states that... Before you go on, look at the fine print. Being blind is not life-threatening. Your kid won't die. We have determined it is cheaper to let your child go blind. That will be no more than seventy-five to $100,000 for us to spend on treatments and initial education for the blind. And then you'll be responsible for the rest. Good luck, cowboy. But don't call us. And no, we won't call you either. <sighs> yes, I am quite jaded sometimes. Let's finish the evening with our traditional reproductive story. You may not find the story quite so titillating as usual, but it is nonetheless quite informative. Okay, this may seem like a strange idea to you, but how exactly did the Y chromosome in males evolve? Evolution implies that there is genetic change and selection over time, and that makes sense with all the genes in your body that are non-sex chromosomes, and even with the X chromosome, in fact. All the other chromosomes, and as I said, even the X chromosome in females, have partners. So what you're thinking to yourself is that it's nice that my chromosomes are not lonely and that they have partners. What are you trying to get at? And no, it means much more than that. You see, one of the major sources of change in chromosomes occurs during the process of meiosis. You may remember from your college or high school biology that meiosis is the process of division that makes sex cells, sperm in male animals and eggs in female animals. And the term that we generally use for both are gametes. And gametes are both types of sex cells. Anyway, at the beginning of the process of making these sex cells, there are two processes that occur that create variability between homologous chromosomes. The first process is something called synapsis. And this is where the common chromosomes line up with each other, the so-called homologous chromosomes. So chromosome 1 lines up with 1, 2 lines up with 2, 3 lines up with 3, 21 lines up with 21, and so on. And remember, you have two of each set in your cells. All the non-sex chromosomes, by the way, are called autosomes. So anything that is not an X or a Y is an autosome. The second process that occurs is something commonly referred to as crossing over in the linguogenetics. What that simply means is that the genetic material, the DNA, is swapped between the homologous chromosomes that are lined up with each other. This swapping of DNA of one chromosome with another is a little like shuffling the card deck of the DNA that you got from mom and dad. 
it ensures that not every generation is going to be genetically exactly the same. So that the chromosome that you got with mom swaps pieces of DNA with the chromosomes that you got from dad. So one swaps with one, two swaps with two, and so on. And by the time, by the time you have gametes or sex cells, sperm cells and egg cells, you'll have DNA that's fairly well mixed up. It's not going to be quite the same as what you've got. Now, think about this. What does the Y chromosome have to swap with? It doesn't. It doesn't. There are no other Y chromosomes to line up with it because the Y chromosomes come as singlets. They don't come as doublets like every other chromosome. So how can a Y chromosome change? How can a Y chromosome evolve? Well, some of this mystery has now been answered in a new article in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences this month. Uh, the work comes out of the lab of Dr. Christian Slaughterer and his uh, team at the University of Veterinary Medicine in Vienna. For years, geneticists who work with fruit fly, Drosophila melanogaster, accepted that the species Y chromosome has only gained seven genes over the last 63 million years. Yes, that's million with an M. It turns out that they were wrong and that in the fruit fly, the Y chromosome is a bit more active than that. Schlatterer's team designed a new method for assessing the Y chromosome gene transfer using deeply inbred Drosophila strains. In the paper, he describes a pretty simple and inexpensive way to identify recent gene duplications to the Y chromosome that doesn't require spending a lot of effort building huge genome assemblies that include the Y chromosome. So here's the deal. If you think the Y chromosome is evolving and exchanging DNA, then it can't be coming from other Y chromosomes. The DNA must be transferred from an autosome or from the X chromosome. So if you were looking at a population of inbred male flies, they would all be genetically identical. Using inbred female genomes as a reference against the male flies, Schlatterer performed next-gen sequencing and then did an assessment to identify Y-chromosome genes as sequences that were only present in the inbred males and not present in the females. And he compared Y-chromosome genes across three different Drosophila species, uh, Drosophila melanogaster, which is the most common one, Drosophila simulans, and Drosophila mauritania. And the team identified 45 unique Y-linked consensus transfers, 25 of which were genes. In the paper, Schlatter states, quote, the results were contrary to our expectations because we thought that these were events happening very rarely. And what we found suddenly was, oh gosh, we have a bunch of them everywhere, unquote. So, is this the theme for the evening? We go from dwarf planets to Y chromosomes, and yet the unexpected seems to be more common than thought previously. Y-linked gene transfers occur either by genomic region translocations or integration of something called retrocopies. Retrocopies are genes that lack intron sequences after being copied from RNA, 
you may remember that introns are interrupting sequences that are found in just about every uh, eukaryotic uh, gene that there is. When Schlatterer's team closely inspected the genes that transferred into the Y chromosome, they found eight of these retrocopy-based gene transfers by identifying sequences that showed signs of splicing and that lay in the boundaries of a donor gene. Thirteen gene transfers were DNA translocations. How this occurs is still a mystery. This is some sort of non-homologous transfer. Interestingly, the mode of gene transfer appears to be species-specific, too. For instance, of the retrocopied-based gene transfers, five of them occurred in the uh, Mauritania species, six of them occurred in the Simulan species, and none of them were found in the Melanogaster species. As you might expect from evolution and selection, functionally important genes survive over time against purifying selection that causes the actual loss of the gene. But here's the take-home message, and my apologies to Jeff Goldblum, but life finds a way. If the Y chromosome can't get genes from other Y chromosomes to maintain itself and evolve, it will steal them from where it can find them, whether that be autosomes, chromosome 4, 8, 9, 12, etc., or X chromosomes for that matter. Obviously, Schlatterer needs to look beyond fruit flies to see if this is true in other animal and plant species, but for the moment, this may be just enough info to inform us about what is going on elsewhere. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Don't annoy electric eels. Watch out for insurance wonks. Remember, there is more out there than even the experts think. Keep watching the skies, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Now, don't go away quite yet. Let me make an unrepentant plug for the novella that I presently have up for sale at Amazon.com. The title of my little SF story is Ex Sanctorum, The Full Armor of God. You can also search for it under my name, J.J. Campanella. Be the first to review this messed up little gem of mine, and I will send you the audiobook version for free when it becomes available in February. All right, done with the blatant plugging. Until next time. This is Jim Campanella. Jim, sir, what can I say? Can I just give you a big hug, man? Thank you so much. You know, we'll have to work out how many episodes you've done as well, because I'm sure you you started probably um, the same month maybe as Amy and just never missed a, never missed a beat. It's been close. <laughs> Actually, you might, yeah, you might have had, I've had a few off, to be quite honest. So, But Jim, thank you so much. Listen, have a blast in 2018, and I hope... All your dreams come true, sir, and all your wishes, and you'll stick with Starship so far. <laughs> Just like to put that one in there. Jim, honestly, big hook man. Massive thank you. Thank you so much. So, there we go. That is the last show of 2017. A little bit different, do you know what I mean? Just a, you know, that little bridge between, between the stars. <laughs> Sitting there in me, in me underpants, middle of bloody, it's pitch black outside, dead early. So what was your favourite? That would be interesting. Pop over to Discord and tell where, you know, in there, what's your favourite story of last year and of this year still? And what was your favourite thing, you know? I watched 
by far the best TV series was a BBC documentary about Voyager that came on. I think it's called The Final Frontier. And it was just all about those two Voyagers that set off. You know, these are the ones with the, the, the record, the gold-plated disc on, which got the voices on. And, man, it was just an emotional, you know, because it just had the guys that were working on it. And, you know, once... And I never even thought that, but it was, was, was a great, you know, someone mentioned it on the show, what, you know, they, they built it and it was still there before they even got it. But once them, they had to put it in a launch, you know, say the launch capsule or wherever, and take it to the launch capsule. Once those doors were shut, you know, that was it. They would never, ever see it again. And what it's about to do, man, I mean, it's... It's just staggering, you know what I mean? 40 years it's been there, the both of them have you know, gone, one's a little bit further, one's out in the, I don't know if they're both out in the interstellar now, but they've passed, you know, our solar system, and now, and the, the last, for you know, just going out there, and they've got that message on, and we'll be long gone, man. That's the one, that's the kicker that gets it, you know, we will be just long gone, our whole race, Knocking bet will be long gone. These will still be there. And, you know, these guys built them, you know, and just, oh, it's just, and it was, honestly, there were like, there was tears coming down these old engineers. There was, it was just a great program. If anyone can find that, you know what I mean? I put a link into the Discord there because I, I keep forgetting what the full title's called because there is a BBC Voyager one. But that wasn't it. Now, in the Discord one, I'll try and uh, find it again. It's some, you know, let's... I'll I'll have a look. One second. There, there. Back now. It was called The Forest. And it was a BBC. It It was part of their Storyville, which is like a little, you know, they do different ideas and different topics each month. This was called The Fathers, Voyager's Interstellar Journey. And it just, last year, you know, this year, last year was just fantastic. You know what I mean? It really was a great documentary. It was just, I think it, as well for me, mate, it, it keeps, you know, it, it it's a little bit personal because if you remember, I interviewed Dr. Chris, oh, what was Chris's surname? You know, and Chris, he's been working on, on the Voyager and he, he actually wrote that him, is it Hames, you know, the book, the actual, the Voyager, you know, you, you get your car manual and, you know, it's it's like how to change a clutch, you know, those ones. He actually wrote, did a one called the Voyager, <laughs> got all that. And it's all there, you know, if you want to build one, you know, I'll fix it. But that's the, the point, you know what I mean? It's just going to go out for, could be billions of years, you know, it's just there, it's not going to, it's not going to, corrode or anything like that it's just it's in a vacuum of space and it'll last and oh man what a dear me there we go so what was your favorite you know science fiction or fact part of last year let us know you know starships over at gmail or pop it in do discord as well we're having a fun there so i think that's that's it you know what i mean i've, I've got there's lots happening next year you know what i mean and, and Honestly, I'm just doing it to kind of make this show survive. So if you can, you know what I mean? Hey, honestly, man, little, you know, little boost forward for New Year to get with through 2018. And, you know, we all want to be here at the end of 2018, safe and sound. That's a thing that I was going to mention as well. When you look 
at our archives, you know, because we have been going that long. We've lost a few dear friends, you know what I mean, over the years. And it's a strange old world, isn't it? It makes you think it doesn't half, man. Bloody hell. You know, I started this when uh, just, oh, well, I'm not going to say just a kid, but I had a family now, but I certainly had no grey hair, you know. <laughs> now I'm like, I'll I'll get up from this desk and it, it, there will be like creaks and oh, you know, and it's just we're getting on, man, getting on, and it's it's lovely that it's still out there this show. Do you know what I mean? Possibly, yeah. <laughs> can you see where I'm going? Possibly, we could be ten thousand, ten billion years from now. I did this little. I put all the shows, all 500 shows and the 100 other, you know, the original shows. Was I mentioning this? I put them into a, like a resin. I put them on a little, one of those little mini micro SD cards, which was, I think it was a 32 gig one. And I put all the shows on there that I sunk it in resin and I've got it. I just carry it in my, my work bag. And it's just like a feel, you know, like a little feel good thing, you know, like a little feel good, just... All that work, all them years of work, just in a tiny, and that's like Voyager, you know what I mean? Just need now get it up into space, or the bottom of the ocean, there we go. So listen, look after her, honestly, you know what I mean? It kind of, we are, we are carried forward by the greatness that is, is one, that is the District of Wonders and the Starships of our listeners, and we wouldn't have been here this year, if it was, you know, if it wasn't for you there, so I just want to hats off and a massive, massive thank you. Do you mean, ah, bugger, what a, what a strange year this was? I thought we were doing great, and then, hey, someone kicked me bloody skittles away from me under my feet, and I was all over the shop, tears and everything. And apologise again if you kind of just tuned into those shows and you're like, well, what's that? going on? That old fella cried his eyes out for, and that language. So, if you can support well, that would be fantastic. But the main thing is, come and listen next year. We've got a lot of things going on. And the starting, the first of, the first of January. So, for a final time in 2017, I'd just like to say, good night from me. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. I don't get out much. I've barely left the ground. I'm tuning into your transmissions. I'm moving, waiting to be found. And I'm building rockets. Pointing them to the moon But the work is going slowly It won't get to you anytime soon Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you This signal's going light speed By the time I get my say You're so far from here And at best I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call At home with nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my 
signal getting through Turn on your radio I want to talk to you I want to talk to you Myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there.